Good evening everyone, my name is Ed Newell, I'm the Principal of Cumberland Lodge. It's really very good indeed to see you here this evening. Um, for the past two days, about 50 of us have been locked in this room uh, discussing history. So we've had um, people from university sector, from museums, NGOs, other organisations, exploring how best to engage with the difficult aspects of our history, the things that are often deliberately ignored, uh, glossed over or given um, a positive spin. And we've also been looking at how our history uh, shapes our identity. And one of those involved in our discussions is our speaker this evening, and it's a huge pleasure and privilege to uh, introduce Professor Martin Daunton. Martin is one of the most distinguished historians in the UK. He's the... Yes, he is, honestly. I think you are. He's one of them. He's one of them. Yeah, we are. And another one's in the front, in the, in the front row here. But uh, uh, Martin is uh, Emeritus Professor of Economic History at the University of Cambridge, where he was also Master of Trinity Hall. Uh, previously, he was Professor of, Economic His uh, uh, Professor of History at University College London. And amongst other things, Martin has served as the President of the Royal Historical Society. And perhaps the most distinguished thing of all is he taught me. So there we are. <laughs> A few years ago now. But there we are. But it's tremendous to have you here, and um, thank you so much for what you've been contributing over the past two days, and we really look forward to hearing you this evening. So over to you, thank Martin. You. Now, before I started, um, Ed was telling me about a, a Russian clergyman at St Paul's who was asked to speak for five minutes, and after two hours or so, he and the dean had to go and yank him off stage. So... With that in mind, I'm going to put on my timer, which will play a piano riff if I've gone on too long. But I've allowed myself five minutes of leeway, so when it goes off, I can still talk if necessary. Uh, well, we've had a really good discussion, and I'm conscious that some people in the room have been part of the two days of discussion, and some people have not heard anything at all about it. So I'm a little bit sort of uh, torn between to whom I'm speaking. So I apologise to those who have heard it before, and I hope that the rest of you will pick up some of the rich texture of what it is we've been talking about, which is really, I suppose, the topic there uh, on, the, on the screen. Now, I want to start off by making a point that what is contested changes over time, has its own history. So what we're now contesting was not the same as was being contested in the late 19th and early 20th century, when bodies such as the National Trust were set up and uh, what is now English Heritage or Historic England, of which I'm currently a commissioner, so I have to be very careful because as a member of Historic England in the front row, taking notes if I go <laughs> off message. So if we go back to the late 19th century and the foundation of the National Trust, founded by people such as Octavia Hill, then we see here the, the first building that uh, the National Trust bought. Before that, they owned uh, land. They, they, they owned beautiful spots. But this was the first house they bought, the Alfriston Clergy House. And as you see, it was derelict for various reasons, and it's now been beautifully restored. And Octavia Hill what, said that this building was rich in memories of England as our ancestors knew. Now, what did she mean by that, and the National Trust mean by that? And 
I would argue it's a vision of heritage against the landed estates, against the great houses. It's about a, uh, an argument in the 1880s that the aristocrats are devalued, they're being politically attacked, there's a turn to new romanticism. And it's the context of this is the land campaign of Henry George. And I'm very conscious that the major historian of the land campaign is Avner Offer sitting there in the audience. Uh, it's a critique of unearned income, that landed aristocrats did not earn their income. They were passive recipients of the enterprise, the dynamism of other people in society. And what the National Trust was arguing here, and Octavia Hill was arguing, was that the yeoman who had been expropriated by the great landowners should be restored. Their land had been expropriated by the Reformation, by enclosures, and the historians writing at that time, like R.H. Tawney and the Hammonds, were arguing that. And then we can run that argument forward in time, and I take here an example of Wentworth Woodhouse, the great estate up in Yorkshire, a uh, Palladian uh, mansion, as, as you see there at the front, although an early Jacobean house at the back. It was owned by the Fitzwilliam family, who made their money out of industry, out of coal mining in the area. And when the coal industry was nationalised after the Second World War, the minister, uh, Manny Shinwell, in the Attlee government, said, I am going to mine open-cast mining right up to their front door. Well, he did. In fact, not only did he mine up the front, open cast money up the front door, he then went underneath the foundations so the house is now falling down a big hole in the ground. At the end of the war, Hugh Dalton, uh, had been Charles Exchequer and, and then became Minister of House and Local Government, said, what should be the war memorial? The war memorial for people who died in the war should be the national parks, uh, which, which were set up. He had been part of Mass Trespass on Kinder Scouts, setting up the Youth Hostel Association. Is that vision of, of England against the land aristocracy. But then we get a shift from hostility to the aristocrats having lost political influence. Um, they lost their political saliency, which they had in the Edwardian period. The big exhibition at the V&A on the destruction of the English country house, that they have to be rescued. And after about 1975, they're fully appreciated. And Wentworth Woodhouse is now in process of being rescued with a grant given by George Osborne from the money from the Libor fine against people in the City of London who've been fixing the, the bank rate. It's got the backing of the local Labour MP and the backing of the local community. So something which was seen as, if you like, destroying the yeoman, destroying the peasantry, is now valued as being something which is of cultural significance and of community significance. So my point here simply is that what we value and what is contested and what is rejected changes over time, and we must be conscious of the political circumstances uh, within which that is occurring. So what is contested in the early 19th century is different, that debate has disappeared. Now the issue is very much more over slavery and empire. And who knows, that debate might in, in itself disappear. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the debate over heritage in that earlier period I'm talking about, if you like the Wentworth Woodhouse sort of period and Octavia Hill, you could argue that in that period, heritage 
could be used to exclude or even contain debates over empire. So if you pick up Stanley Baldwin's book um, on England, um, which is a set of his essays and, and lectures and radio broadcasts, he presents a picture in there of England of being plough teams, wood smoke, roses around the cottage door. And what is he doing there? He is saying that this vision of the English countryside and of the cottage excludes class conflict, which is a very comforting thing to say after the general strike of 1926. We're all countrymen at heart, therefore we're not really labour against capital. But it also was a way of excluding another view of Englishness, a person who was in his cabinet, but, but who uh, they really disliked each other, and that was Winston Churchill. Because to Winston Churchill, no, England is about imperialism. Um, and of course he splits the Conservative Party um, over the uh, uh, India Act of 1935, which he opposed. And there's here a different, more aggressive form of Englishness, which Baldwin is trying to contain. So heritage has a political purpose, and how it's interpreted as a political purpose at any one time. And let me conclude this part of my, my comment by pointing to the vision which you have in the Festival of Britain in 1951. What did that celebrate? Well, at the tail end of the Ackley government, of course, it did not celebrate imperialism. That would be politically contentious at the time where India has recently uh, been given independence and Pakistan. Neither did it celebrate internationalism at a time when the Americans were pressing Britain to become in fact, more free trade, open markets, multilateral, uh, and to abandon imperial preference. So it is a bit wary about that vision, it wants to be domestic planning. So it's an inward-looking national celebration as social democratic, classless, egalitarian, balancing the ancient past with a modern future, it's a Whig history of civil and religious freedom and individualism expanding over time, but it also inc incorporates different visions. Britain is both made up of romantic cavaliers and of efficient roundheads, and it's because we can incorporate both of those that we are what we are. And Stephen Collini has argued that that is what British uh, the middle of the House of Parliament, for example, does. It shows both those previously conflicting views together and that we bring people together. It wrote the empire, the 1951 festival, wrote the empire out of the story on the South Bank. And British identity was presented as stable and unproblematic. Of course, Empire Wind Windrush had only just arrived hadn't yet changed the, like the demographic and ethnic composition of the British population, and it was possible to present an identity which is stable and unproblematic. But that's not the case now. So let me turn to the, these current debates which are, which are going on. So the empire was written out. How now do we write it in? Must roads fall? Now, I'm sure you've all read in the press uh, views about Cecil Rhodes at Oriel College. And I'm sure that if you read the Daily Telegraph, 
on the Daily Mail, you might get a different view from reading The Guardian. It's, it's a contested topic. And it's something which, and here, here I have to be careful, it's something which is currently politically contentious within historic England. Because there on the far side there, you have the building with a statue of Cecil Rhodes, which the, the students and others at, at Oriel College want to take down. But the building is listed. And because the building is listed, the statue is listed. Therefore, in order to take it down, they would have to apply to Historic England to delist it. Well, they haven't yet. But what would we say if they did? Now, I'm on that committee, so um, I, I worry about, about this. Um, the college did not apply to delist it because, putting it very simply, the alumni said, if you, uh, if you take it down, we're not going to give you any more money. So the question then is, how does the college then take on board that and try to meet the two sides of the, the argument? <clears throat> it's, it's a really big, contentious um, issue, which the current master uh, was telling me about last week. But there's also, on a building at Oriel, this plaque which is on a building in which Cecil Rhodes was a student. Now, you probably can't, can't read that. It's an unlisted plaque put up in 1906. And what the wording says in there is partly, it's in recognition of the great services rendered by Cecil Rhodes to his country. Now, that's a slightly provocative, put it mildly, statement. The claim was deeply political even at the time, let alone now. Uh, the date of 1906 is significant because it's just after the Boer War, uh, when the Liberal government is coming in, and uh, some Liberals, like David Lloyd George, were, were pro-Boer. Um, he saw a similarity between the Boers and the Welsh as being exploited national minorities. Because if you were on the Joe Chamberlain side of the Conservative Party, you would not see it like that. So it's politically deeply contentious at the time, and it's contentious now. So in 2015, the college applied to the council for its removal. It's not listed, but it's in a conservation area. So should the city council give permission to uh, take it down? They haven't so far come to any decision on this. What would happen if somebody applied to have it listed? Because any member of the public can apply to have it listed. Well, perhaps you might guess that somebody has applied to have it listed. So what then happens? So Historic England will have to come to a debate, a decision on that. But it's, well, it's not a decision, it's a recommendation to the minister. So what then happens? So we were talking earlier on about who is the gatekeeper of deciding what is to be valorised or, or not. So you can see this is a currently deeply political issue and you, might, you will all have different views on this so we can have a discussion about it. Uh, um, I'm being cautious about giving what my view might be since um, I, ha I have to have a view. Edward Colston is another case in Bristol which you've probably all heard about. A statue in a square in Bristol of Edward Colston erected in 1895. When it was erected, it was unproblematic. 
it represented the civic pride of Bristol. So there's a whole attempt in the late 19th century to make Bristol you know, have civic pride in its past. So a lot of statues were put up, libraries were built and concert halls. It's all about this you know, like urban renaissance um, in Bristol. It's uncontroversial. Slavery had ended. It wasn't talked about. It was over. Colston however, was a member of the Royal Africa Company in the late 17th century, and he had an interest in some kits, a slave plantation. What does the plaque say on the base of that statue? It says he was a great philanthropist. And this memorial is of one of the most virtuous and wise sons of their city. But what do we do about that? because there might be different positions on that, obviously, about whether he was wise and virtuous or exploitative and um, you know, somebody to be uh, de despised. Well, on the statue at, on the top, I don't know if it's clear enough, um, an artist called uh, Hugh Locke uh, for the exhibition on art and empire at the Tate uh, Britain uh, did a digital piece of work, not actually on the thing itself, but a digital piece of work in which Hugh Locke said, I made him a fetish figure covered in kari beads which were used in Africa for trading slaves. So he's making visible where the money came from. So the argument here might be that we retain the statue, but we reinterpret it and contest it and acknowledge what was done in the past. But then, what do you do about bodies, institutions, buildings within Bristol named after Colston. So what about Colston Girls' School? I have a parent of a girl from Colston's Girls' School in the front row, so um, I, I know she will have views about this. In 1702, towards the end of his life, Colston made a donation for the education of poor boys. The Whig Corporation of the city refused to take the money because they didn't agree with the politics of, of Colston. So in 1706, he turned to the, to the Society of Merchant Venturers and set up the Colston Hospital, which opened in 1710. Hospital in the sense of like you know, a school, not a place for sick people. And it was set up in 1710 to teach according to the principles of the established church on condition that no boys would be apprenticed to dissenters. In 1870, at a time when dissenters were accepted as being citizens of the country, they could even go to Oxford and Cambridge and so on, in 1870, the Endowed Schools Commission, a report by Joshua Fitch, was highly critical of the merchant venturers and pressed them to set up a girls' school. And the merchant venturer said, no, we can't do that because it was against the will of Colston. They were forced to do it by an act of parliament in 1875. And Colston Girls' School opened in 1891. Now, what do you do now to a school named after a slaver? In 2017, Colston's name was dropped from Colston Concert Hall in Bristol. There were petitions on either side. City Council decided to drop the name. St Stephen's Church abandoned the Thanksgiving service in honour of this great philanthropist, as he had been viewed. 
And then the pupils of the girls' school pressed for the removal of his name and the symbol of the chrysanthemum from the commemoration service held in the cathedral. The governors of the school refused to rename the school and then, I think rather um, ahistorically, they claimed direct descent from Colston's Hospital, despite the fact there was no direct descent from Colston's Hospital, and they, the, the uh, merchant ventures were forced to set up the school despite themselves. Anyway, the governors refused to rename the school. They actually reinforced rather than distanced the link. I understand now from my informant in the front row that in the school, the statue of Colson is now covered by a black um, shroud. But at the same time, they've named the sixth form college Venturers College after the body which was preventing, trying to prevent the setting up of the girls' school. Now, you can see how complicated and contested this all is. Now, the question then is, is it appropriate to change a name? I think on balance I would say keep the statue and reinterpret it, contest it, but should we change the name? Now that takes me on to my next point. And some of you who were here for the earlier part of the, uh, of the conference uh, will be aware that um, one of the speakers, the first speaker, uh, also talked about this, uh, somebody who is now a professor of, econo uh, professor of history at University College London, where I was and uh, had the pleasure of teaching um, your director here tonight. And the question here is, what's in the name? Should we, to use the comment of Margot Finn this, uh, yesterday morning, should we erase or should we use erudition to explain? Now, let me give you uh, an ex the, the example that I have here which is of two universities on different sides of the world, but intellectually connected. <clears throat> University of Melbourne and UCL. And this is very much in my mind because I give lectures in the University of Melbourne and I used to lecture at UCL in these buildings I'm now going to talk about. So in Melbourne, a building was put up in 1923 called the Richard Berry Building. And the initiator of that was the professor of anatomy, Richard Berry. Didn't pay for it, but he was being honoured in the name for the new department of anatomy. An Englishman who had moved there in 1903. The background to this dispute over the naming of the building is that in Victoria, where Melbourne is, Mental deficiency bills were put to the Victorian State Parliament in 1926 and in 1929 to institutionalise and sterilise the inefficient. And they were defined as slum dwellers, homosexuals, prostitutes, alcoholics, people with small heads and aborigines. The, the bill failed in 1926 and 1929. It passed in 1939 which is astonishing when you think of what had been happening in Nazi Germany, although it was not implemented uh, because of the outbreak of the war. Berry returned to the United Kingdom, to Bristol, where he became head of a, a mental hospital in 1929. In 1930, 
he advocated the establishment of a lethal chamber to euthanise the grosser types of our mental defectives. That was in the Eugenics Review. He collected about 400 Aboriginal corpses, some stolen from traditional graves, to be used for experiments. Now, you can imagine in Australia now, where obviously there's much more concern about the civil rights of Aboriginal people, that is a, a source of considerable unease, to put it mildly. What does one do about it? Well, Ross Jones, who is the leading historian in Australia of medicine and eugenics, opposed the renaming. And I quote from an interview he gave in the, uh, the local newspaper. If you change the name, you forget the history. And he said that, in fact, one reason for changing the name was that the, in fact, the council of the university, who were made up of the great and the good, the elite of Melbourne, wanted to erase the past of their predecessors. And Ross Jones says that Melbourne wished to forget that it was once controlled by the leaders of the eugenics movement. And instead, he said, it should have a plaque there to explain why it is called this and what the history of the eugenics movement is. And there are other buildings on campus of Melbourne universities with a similar, rather checkered history. In 2016, the building was renamed the Peter Hall Building. It's another department of mathematics and statistics. Peter Hall was a distinguished mathematician, or is, I should say, a distinguished mathematician and statistician. Now, some people think that was the wrong decision, so you will have different views about this. If you were an Aboriginal person going past that every day and seeing that name, you could imagine being deeply troubled and, and upset. The same issue is now arising at University College London. The great figure in the history of the eugenics movement, I say great in the sense of you know, the initiator rather than uh, um, holding up on a pedestal, was Francis Galton. The, there's a lecture theatre at UCL called the Galton Lecture Theatre. It was only named the Galton Lecture Theatre in the 1960s. So he was the father of eugenics, of this sort of movement that uh, Richard Berry was um, running in Australia. In 2014, an academic at UCL suggested it should be renamed. And after a lot of discussion, in 2018, a commission of inquiry into the history of eugenics at UCL was set up by the provost of the university. And it's a report in July. They're meeting at the moment. Should UCL follow the example of Melbourne? So just to um, think about what options we might have here in dealing with this troubled history. Statues or naming of buildings and so on perpetuate values that we might no longer feel acceptable and they cause a sense of oppression in public space. So if you are a black person walking across the square with Colson statue in Bristol, you might feel the same as an Aboriginal person walking past the, uh, the Berry building in Melbourne. So sense of oppression in public spaces, should we oblige anybody to feel oppressed, 
Do other values now outweigh that? Or is that an ahistorical airbrushing away of other views so people can forget and not come to terms with what was there? What will happen when our own views in turn become unfashionable? So these are the issues. So I've set out there four possible options. One is to leave statues in sight with contextual interpretation either on another plaque or by uh, some sort of using your iPhone on a, on a code. And that's the position taken by Historic England. And I've quoted here the uh, public statement. Removing difficult and, and contentious parts of the historic environment would risk harming our understanding of our collective past. Instead, we usually recommend that clear, long-lasting and or innovative reinterpretation at or near a contested object or site can be used in order to reflect the change context and contemporary understanding. Well, how do you do that? So there's a, big, there's a big issue. The second point might be to say, well, if we leave the statue there, perhaps we should celebrate other voices as a counterpoise. We could put up more statues, or we could commission public art to subvert the statue, a bit like Hugh Locke was doing there digitally, but do it in reality. Thirdly, you might say, no, it is offensive to have those statues where they are or those names where they are. Let's remove them from public space, but not destroy them, to place them in a museum where they can be interpreted in a safer space. And at a recent debate, that was the view of David Olasoga, which, which he made uh, very, very passionately, saying that, you know, he said, he lives in Bristol, he said, I do not myself feel oppressed by looking at Colston's statue, uh, but I can imagine other people might, and therefore remove them, put them in a museum. And the fourth approach is to ensure that the history of slavery, the empire, or the contribution of people from all sorts of backgrounds is inscribed where it is now invisible. Now let me try and run through some of those points in my remaining 11 minutes and 28 seconds. Well, inscriptions have been changed in the past, so we shouldn't necessarily think that taking down the wording um, of um, Colston, you know, a great sort of philanthropist, or uh, Rhodes, great services country, is something new. When the monument was put up, the monument to the Father of London, in 1677, it initially just listed the buildings which had been lost and the streets which had been burned. In 1681, it was added on, on the plinth there, which you see, um, that the burning of this Protestant city began and was carried out by the treachery and malice of the Popish faction. Well, that was taken down in 1685, James, James II might have something, something to do with that, you know, being a sort of uh, Catholic, but was put up in 1689. Hmm, William of Orange. Um, Alexander Pope, himself a Catholic, described the monument as where London's column pointing at the skies like a tall bully lifts the head and lies. A bit like the Colston sort of um, issue. It was, then that, it was then removed after Catholic emancipation in 1829. So, does it suggest that we are overly resistant to, ch to uh, changing Plaque's wording in response to changing values? Is there any reason to retain or list the Rhodes plaque 
which is reflecting the politics of 1906, which have now changed. Now, one view of Tom Crew in a recent article in the London Review of Books is that you leave statues when they are politically detached, when they're safe. You make a decision, is it safe, is it offensive? And he says that every day from his office, he has his sandwiches sitting on a pedestal of the statue of Charles James Fox. And he says most people don't know who Charles James Fox is. It was contentious when it was erected in 1816 because it was about constructing the Whig political identity of Bloomsbury, which belonged to the Bedford estate, a great Whig family. Opposite Fox in Russell Square, the name of the Bedford estate, of the Bedford family, is a statue of the 5th Duke of Bedford, erected in 1809, a devoted fox site. Both statues were designed by a Whig sculptor, Richard Westmacott. It was part of political theatre. The Bedford estate Bloomsbury is a Whig domain. Now, if I said Bloomsbury to you now, you would say Virginia Woolf, John Maynard Keynes, sexual politics, you know, modernism, liberation, whatever it might be. Uh, that's where all, what, what all the blue plaques are. So the, 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 the place has changed its meaning, its identity. And Tom Crewe says that Fox's statue is now viewed with detachment, impossible in the 19th century. When the original context goes away, keep it. But when the context refuses to go away, as in Rhodes or Robert E. Robert e. Lee in the southern United States, we can clearly and coldly see them as intrinsically political objects. So we say, that's what we ask. Is it intrinsically political? Now, um, I think he actually says, well, Cromwell's not intrinsically political. Well, say that to somebody in Northern Ireland. But where's the line to be drawn? I think this is what is really, really difficult to argue. So Confederates, there's, there's, there's a statue of Robert E. Lee, and you can see just in the far corner there somebody wearing a Ku Klux Klan outfit. Well, you could say, if you were of that view, that nobody goes to use the statue of Colston or Rhodes as a site of white supremacists. So is that where you, you draw the line? Whereas in Richmond, it is used as a site for white supremacists. Do you say if it was erected as a deliberate act of repression or ideology, then they could be removed? Confederate statues were put up in the Jim Crow era as a symbol of white supremacy, and those issues still continue and are still active. Is that less true of Colston? Nobody's suggesting bringing back slavery, we, we take it. Uh, whereas perhaps in the southern United States, there is still a, a much more live, live issue. So there's a debate going on there. What I would like to suggest, however, is that that is not only the only debate we should have. I think we also then need to start inscribing where it is not visible and not now contentious. Let's think about Thomas Carlyle. If anybody now reads Thomas Carlyle, which I doubt, um, I think he's seen as an unproblematic figure. Until you start looking more closely at his 1849 pamphlet, an occasional discourse on the Negro question, which is written in reaction to the freeing of slaves in the Caribbean, and say, look at them. They're lazy. They're not working. They're up to their eyes in pumpkins, was the phrase he, he used. It's really a deeply offensive piece of writing. 
They're happy and lazy, the crop is rotting while the white planters have been ruined. And he says, at home, the government has helped these lazy people in the Caribbean. And meanwhile, the British working class are starving in the middle towns. Uh, and you know, that's what they should be thinking about. Charles Dickens supported Governor Eyre, who was the governor of Jamaica in the Monarch Bay Rebellion of 1865, and supported that view. So Charles Dickens was explicitly racist in the same way as Carlyle, but of course looking, wanted to look after the, the poor at home. So how do we value these people? We can't just remove villains, if you like, like Colson or Rhodes. We've also got to be aware of the historical context of these other people and of their now offensive ideological views. John Stuart Mill wrote an essay against Thomas Carlyle, and he said, well, wouldn't you want to be lazy if suddenly you discovered that your labour's in short supply, you could demand a high wage? That's a perfectly rational attitude, he said. And he went on to say that the earliest civilizations were African, and that the Greeks were taught by Egypt, and he saw Egypt as being an African civilization. Now, those debates go on now at University College London. University College London has the Petrie Museum of Archaeology, Flinders Petrie, one of the great, so apparently, Egyptologists. But Flinders Petrie was a member of the Eugenic Society. He took the view that the Egyptian religion, um, sorry, rejected the view that the Egyptian religion was close to northeast and central Africa, which is the view held by the director of Egyptology at the British Museum. And he said, no, Egyptian civilization must have been created by an invading Caucasian race. He was a devoted eugenicist, a supporter of right-wing groups. I've just been writing about him in a different context where he opposed the 1909 People's Budget. Nobody, as far as I'm aware, has said that the Flinders Petrie Museum of Egyptology at University College should be renamed, because they probably don't realise what I just told you. So this is the, the debate which we, which we have to, to think about. And it's not just in Britain. We have to think about where to draw the line, to topple, to not to topple. We debated some of these issues over the last few days. In Germany, symbols of Hitler, of the Nazis, were removed. Mussolini's grave is still there in Italy. Saddam Hussein is toppled. We might think that's a, that's a good thing. Lenin and Stalin were removed as symbols of oppression. In Spain, and sometimes they were put in museums, as, as I show there in, in Budapest at the, at the top. They were put in the museum park in Budapest. In Spain, the law of historical memory in 2007 removed all insignia and plaques of the Civil War to the dictatorship, but protected those which had artistic, architectural or religious significance. Hmm, where do you draw the line? Because the argument about that plaque for um, Rhodes would have to be, if it were to be listed, on artistic merit. Well, then you can't get a big, a big debate. The last statue of Franco was removed in Spain in 2008, but then the issue remained what to do with his body, uh, which has, I think, just been removed. But the Arco della Vittoria 
in Madrid uh, is still there. What does one do about that? So th these issues are still live in, in Spain. Budapest removes these statues of Stalinist oppression into a park, but then the right-wing government erects this, um, how can I put it, I don't, don't think you'll get any Marxist aesthetic merit, statue, which shows an eagle, Germany, swooping on Hungary as a victim of Nazi oppression, which of course rewrites history of uh, the fact that the Hungarians were complicit in the rounding up of the Jews in Hungary at the end of the war. So let's try and think then about inscribing where it's now invisible. So I'll just uh, move very quickly to my final one minute before the there's up, but with my five minutes of buffer zone. Um, what I would like to do is to try and restore politics where it's detached. Okay, so Charles James Fox is now detached, so Tom Cruise says. But in fact, in 1806, his last major parliamentary action was to move the abolition of the slave trade. And he said in his speech that if that is the only thing he ever does in his parliamentary career, that is enough. Though perhaps we should try and say, here is Charles James Fox who did that. English Heritage has just unveiled a plaque a few years ago to Daniel O'Connell, the great liberator, leader of champion of Irish civil rights, uh, of the emancipation of the Catholics, but also, in 1833, in the house where that plaque is, he moved the abolition of, of slavery. Blue plaque has just been put up to uh, Bob Marley. Now, so we're inscribing these other histories. We should rescue those other histories. But is that enough? And I'll give you an example. There we are. I got my five minutes buffer zone, so I'm actually on, on time. Um, Comfort Mills, just been made a World Heritage Site in Derbyshire. It's part of the, the Derwent Valley. The first powered cotton textile mill in the world. Celebrated as a site of industrial ingenuity. That's why it was listed by uh, men of a certain age, uh, by my age, uh, who like messing about with bits of old machinery. But it's more than that. The University of Nottingham set up a research project called the Global Cotton Connections, linked to the U University College London Legacy of British Slave Ownership. There's the website if you want to look at it for the Global Cotton Connections. And it's saying, where did that cotton come from? And most of it came from, in 1793 to 8, from the West Indies, 45%. 42.9% of it came from Brazil, which I didn't realise. Only a tiny bit came from the United States at that time. You could also find out where the capital came from to build the mill, being linked with slavery. So you can show these ramifications. And then what they also did was draw in the BEM community in the East Midlands, from Bengali communities and so on, to show the impact that the me mechanised production of cotton there had upon the handloom weavers of India. So you, could, you tried then to write the history of that mill into the current um, community and to show that this is not just the first industrial uh, mechanised mill, it's wider than that. There's the Legacies of British Slave Ownership website, which I recommend anybody to look at. And I'll just give you one quick example um, of how this can be used. Slavery in the country house. 
Now I'm going to rewrite the history of somewhere like that Palladian house at Wentworth Woodhouse, with which I started. And here is a house not very far away from where I live in Cambridge, in Suffolk. The Archdeacon, apparently is how it's uh, pronounced, family. Uh, they owned the Golden Grove and Batchers Hall, Batchers Hall Pen plantations in Jamaica. They owned about a thousand slaves. Uh, the house was bought for £10,000 in 1791, and I give you the data there. In 1833, they received compensation. When the slaves were freed, they were, the owners were given compensation uh, of, of quite a large sum of money. They contributed to that Governor Air Defence Committee in 1866, which I mentioned, the man who brutally put down uh, an, an uprising in, in Jamaica. If you look at the listing of Historic England, it just says this is a grade two house, grade two star house, and it describes every particular architectural detail you could possibly wish to have. It does not say anything at all about where the money came from. If you go on to that Legacy British Slave Owned website, you get all the details. You then click on a link in that, which is the uh, English land ownership record. You click on that and you get all of the evidence which I have presented you with there. It has not been written into history. Should we do this in museums? Well, yes or no. Here is the Rijksmuseum just been redone at a massive cost. And what they've done there is aestheticise violence. You go into it and you see these faces. You could read it, as they wish you to read it, as a modern art installation. In fact, that is a eugenic model of islanders by this man, J.P. Kleinweg de Zwan, in 1910. He's doing more or less what Barry and Galton were doing, measuring skulls. Do they have big heads? small heads. Nothing there at all. Um, it's offensive. You go in the next room and there's a shield from Ache. It says this is a shield from Ache before 1877. does not tell you that there's a war, the Ache War of 1873 to 1904, which is now considered by most people to have been a war crime. And I found the letters of man, one man who was there who became later on Prime Minister of the Netherlands saying, I told my soldiers to go about slashing the people with the sabres. They had great fun. Nothing there in the Rijksmuseum. You go to the, um, a gallery which shows landscape art. France posts romanticised Brazilian landscapes as Arcadia. Does not say that he went to Brazil in the entourage of Johann Moritz von Nassau Siegen, the governor of the Dutch colony, who went to uh, Fort Elmina on the Gold Coast and started the slave trade. The Moritz house, from which his, where his collection ultimately went in The Hague, has lived up to this. And it's just launched a research project just now, this week, with the University of Leiden on Moritz and slavery. And I'll give you one final example of how it might be done, the reopening of the Royal Museum of Central Africa in Brussels, built in 1898, notorious violent colony of uh, Leopold II, last revamped in 1958 before independence, just been reopened as the African Museum. And what that is doing is writing the history of violence into the gallery. 
and subverting it by using modern art. A head there, um, which um, is in the spot where Leopold II opened the museum. And now it's a head by a Congolese artist of uh, uh, an African head. And here you have um, another artwork called Shadows. Here you have the names of the 1,508 Belgians who died in the conquest. They're being commemorated. Down here you have the names of the seven Congolese who were brought to be part of the human zoo of um, Leopold II. What we don't know is the names of all the millions of people who were also killed. That is inscribed into it. Now, I won't go into this because I really have no one at the time, and I'll be yanked off the stage by uh, Ed, as he did uh, so effectively before with the uh, Russian Orthodox priest. Are our museums doing it? Well, I could talk about more about this. The National Maritime Museum has tried to do it, but I think not altogether correct. I speak as a former trustee. You just asked in one gallery, which has just opened a couple of weeks ago, British Empire, multicultural, leading to the interconnection between peoples, British Empire, exploitation. When I was there, they counted all of the votes electronically, 50% for one, 50% of the other. Of course, that is a stupid question. It's like the question asked of John MacDonald. Is Winston Churchill a hero or a villain? Well, yes, no, bit of this, bit of that. So it doesn't really engage. The V&A galleries of Indian art do not connect with the history of India of 1857, of the Bengal famine. And in fact, they have engaged some artists, I'm told, by somebody who was at the conference, but they have not shown the work. They've not done what they have done um, in the Congo. I could say the same about the African collections at the British Museum. Would you be there to get an understanding of Mau Mau or the famines uh, that we talked about? So should we have a museum of the British Empire as a way of facing up to the contentious issues? And if so, what would be in there? So I've been opening up all these issues, and I think my view is that focusing on roads must fall and Colston distracts. That's not the real issue. We need to inscribe the missing history. We need to face up to the task of interpreting in the museums and in the school curriculum there's the issue which I haven't touched upon, which is do we have restitution of the works of art? And I haven't touched upon the issue because, dare I mention the word Brexit today, um, a way in which some of these issues are used in current political debates, like in Mike Kenny and Nick Pierce's book, Shadow of Empire, where they, they refer to the new right idea of the empire as the Anglosphere, which we will return to once you've escaped from Europe. So these are issues which are politically very salient today. At that point, I will stop before Edmund shoots me. <laughs> ¶¶